we are just about to be finished with John. And I have to say that just about because I'm not sure I'll finish. But I'm going to try. I was going to take a week to just read the Gospel of John and out loud together. Um, but it takes two hours for me to read it. Um, online it said it'd take two and a half hours. So apparently I'm a pretty fast oral reader. Uh, just reading it out loud. So I got it just under about an hour and 55 minutes. I didn't figure you wanted to sit through that. Um, but uh, I really want to encourage you. We are going to take a week, I think, to just do an overview of the whole book. Again, to look at the mega themes and remind ourselves of them uh, throughout the book of John as we close up this study. And Today, we are going to be leaping out of John because he invites us to at the end of the book. He invites us to take and realize that John is just one view, one perspective into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go outside of John much, uh, much of today to focus in on one doctrinal uh, element that I think we ignore largely within our uh, Christian worship. And, uh, and, and it's unfortunate. It's, it's, it's really pretty sorry that we do that. Uh, and we want to focus in on that. I introduced that last week in talking about the ascension of the Lord and the essential nature of that. And this morning we're going to take some time to peruse that throughout the scripture again by John's invitation. If you turn to John chapter 21, uh, we're going to look at the last two verses. It says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. The last eyewitness among the twelve, the last living eyewitness among the twelve, writes this. His intention was not to be comprehensive but to add another perspective in addition to the other Gospels that were already widely distributed. And so John would have already had access to those other ones. He says, these things I have written, um, and this is my testimony, that I want to add to that, not in contradiction to it, but to add more flavor to it. We're adding a breadth to understanding of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And... He goes on in verse 25 and says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. If they were written one by one, uh, it would be an exhaustive book. And Again, he doesn't say that they, it could not be written. He says it would just be a lot. And so he says this hyperbole he uses of that the world cannot contain the books. Uh, obviously, um, it probably could. Uh, but uh, he's just talking about the extensiveness of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is a figure of speech. We use them all the time. And every great piece of literature is going to use them. It shouldn't surprise us to see these men using these figures of speech. But what it does tell us is that John understands that this is not the, the, the end all. This is not the singular source that you should have to fully grasp and understand 
the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they are correlated. And we talk about the synoptic gospel. Synos means together. They, they go together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. That is, we can overlay them on top of each other pretty easily and see similar uh, events and they, they correlate and we can see those and we can line them up and we, we can, there's a few challenges along the way to deal with timelines and places and things like that. Uh, Jesus' ministry is an itinerant ministry, he's an itinerant pastor, preacher, if you will, that went to many different communities and would have spoken much the same message in them uh, because he would add a different audience every time except for 12. And so whether this author wants to focus in on this time he spoke or that time he spoke, it might be a very similar uh, sermon, but to a completely different group. And so you have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and in Luke you have the Sermon on the Plains. Uh, very similar, uh, but distinct. Uh, and so this would have been very typical of an itinerant ministry. And that goes on today, too. Uh, I know you have your favorite speakers, and if you ever go to different cities where your favorite speaker is speaking, you'll find him saying the same sermon. And I've had people say that. Well, I went to them, and I went to this city and heard this guy. I went to that city and heard this guy. It's happened to me too. Uh, now on both ends, both listening to sermons and preaching those sermons. Uh, so as I traveled around India, I had a different audience every single day. Uh, but Pastor Reddy and my wife got to hear the same message. I tried to, to develop it and move through a chapter in John 14, 15, and 16, um, but they had a lot of similar information each sermon. And so there's that overlay, and don't be disappointed by that. And so that accounts for much of this. But we get to the Gospel of John, and it's quite distinct from the other ones. That's why we don't call it one of the synoptic Gospels, because it's so different. And we have some struggles overlaying the events with the events of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, of course, focuses in, in almost entirely, I'm not going to say entirely, but an enormous amount of the Gospel of John is really given in the last month of Jesus' life. Uh, and in, so there's very little information about some of his other ministry outside of that period of time. And we have extensive information of his private interchange with his disciples that we don't have in the others. But one event that we do not have here, and we do not have it in Matthew either, is the ascension. It is recorded for us in Mark. It is recorded for us in, in Luke, and again in Luke's writing of the book of Acts. But it, all, but it is talked about in John. We have referenced it many times. And the ascension is something John cares very much about, though he doesn't record it actually happening in his book. For example, we have seen repeatedly that Jesus Christ comes before his disciples and says, I am going to the Father. I am going to the Father. I am going to the Father. And we find out in his interchange with them as he's saying, I'm going to the Father. This is particularly in, a, in the night of the Last Supper uh, that he communicates his stuff both in the upper room and as they traverse over to the Mount of Olives, I am going to my Father. And as I go to him, I'm going to be able to send to you the Holy Spirit. And so it's better for you that I go away, that he may come to you. And we talked about that, that that's, that spectacular statement that just goes whoop right over our heads, 
Because we all think, oh, it would have been so nice to have walked with Jesus around Jerusalem. That would have been so superior to my Christian experience today. But Jesus doesn't agree with you. He says it's better for you that he goes to the Father and that you receive the Holy Spirit. So we are in a better position. And that is what makes the ascension so important. Because if Jesus did not ascend to his Father, the Spirit would not have been sent to us to abide with us, to be the seal of our inheritance, the Bible says, to be the illuminator of our minds, to be the convictor of the world. All of those things that the Holy Spirit involves himself in, in a semi-permanent base. I say semi-permanent because there's a time where he's going to go. Before this church age is all dependent upon Christ's ascension to heaven. And so he keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to my Father. I'm going to your Father, my Father. And it's for your, for your benefit. And so we have celebrations throughout the year. What do we celebrate? We celebrate uh, his resurrection. And we call it the Easter service. We celebrate his death, burial, resurrection. Uh, we have a... I don't know why we have Good Friday when it couldn't have happened on a Friday. Um, good, good Thursday, uh, because he had to be in the three days and three nights. Okay, you can't do that with Friday. I know they try, but it doesn't work. And so, uh, and some of you can tell it happened Wednesday. Uh, but we have him, his death and his resurrection, the first day of the week, and we celebrate that not only. Uh, in conjunction with Passover in the spring, but every Lord's Day that we gather, we're celebrating his resurrection. So that's why we celebrate on the first day of the week, because it correlates with when he arose from the dead. And so that is our highest worship, is of that period of time. You may say, well, Pastor, what do you think else should we be worshiping, or should, should be our high points of celebrating Christ? Well, I think the ascension should be number two. Yeah, number two after the resurrection is the ascension. The ascension of our Lord to heaven should be a major focus of our celebratory year. But we don't do that. If you want to know what I think the third one is, just because you're curious, um, I think it's Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is correlated. I think that should just be one 10-day celebration. Any takers on that? Let's take 10 days off from the Ascension to Pentecost. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? That should be our big one. Of our, we should get a week off, at least well, half a week off, to celebrate the resurrection. I'm pretty sure it should go from at least Wednesday night through Sunday night. That should be our, our huge celebration for the church. Pentecost should be a huge celebration for the church, correlated with Ascension that happened a few days earlier about 10 days, because as we're going to see in Acts. And so that should be a huge part of our celebration. And most people don't even know when Pentecost is. Not only do we not celebrate, we're completely ignorant of when the ascension happened. And it is, in my opinion, and I think in the, doctrinally, the second most important thing we should be celebrating of Christ's life and ministry is his ascension. Because without that, we have no Holy Spirit. The ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit are so important to remind ourselves of and celebrate it. And then the fourth one is probably the Lord's uh, birth narrative because it is celebrated extensively in Scripture, uh, including angelic activity and things like, and, and 
messengers and magi and shepherds, all of that. I don't want to discount that, and, and that's coming up pretty soon. Um, in fact, it's this week. According to some. September 11th of 3 B.C. is what the people who try to correlate the arrangement of the stars with the description of his birth and the star arrangement in Revelation chapter 12 have said, well, that only happened once in history, and that was on September 11th, yes, September 11th of 3 B.C. Are you ready to celebrate that this week? I'll be at the Bahamas. If you'd like to celebrate the birth of our Lord by pouring concrete, I'll be there. And we'll have, I don't know, fireworks or something. I don't know. I don't know what, we'll try to pretend we're shepherds. Everyone dress up. So these are the top four. And we're doing pretty good on the Lord's death, burial, resurrection. We're doing horrible on his ascension and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, sent by the Son. And we're, we're just kind of totally been paganized by, by our celebration of his birth. Uh, and then if you want number five, it would probably be the, the arrival of the Magi, which would be January 8th. So the, our calendar is completely missing what I think are some of the most important, and our theology is missing it. So let's go into God's word, and because John invites us to say, listen, there's more than I can write about. There's more than time permits me and that paper permits me, and maybe he had, there was a paper shortage there um, when he was writing. Uh, maybe he was running to the end of his papyrus and, and knew he had to cram it in there, uh, but there, here we go. And so let's look at the other accounts of our Lord's uh, ascension. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to take note. Now, in Matthew, we have the, another account of them meeting in Galilee. That's where the Great Commission is given, is at Galilee, where we have just seen breakfast at Galilee, remember? And so we had breakfast with them and so, and, and, and as we studied that passage. Uh, Matthew's commission, go and preach the gospel to all nations, baptize them in the faith, Father, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was at Galilee. And uh, then they were sent down to Jerusalem to wait and to uh, anticipate his ascension. And so we have that recorded for us in Mark. Mark is the briefest of the Gospels and wants to move the timeline along pretty good. And so he completely skips the entire Galilean events and goes right to the end. In the Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says, So then... After the Lord spoke to them, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The signs that were just shown up above in the commission that the Lord gave them. And so again, remember last week we talked about the connection between the ascension and and ministry, that that has been made a very strong thing throughout God's word. I don't find any place where we find the ascension described without it correlating with Christians going out and preaching. 
The ascension brings ministry. The ascension and the resurrection bring ministry and should move us to ministry as we study it. And so here we have Christ ascending into heaven, but notice his ascent he is received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. While the resurrection is certainly the power of God over sin and death, there is no mistaking that. That is the power of the resurrection. That is the work of God in accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sin. But there is so much more to your salvation than just getting rid of sin. <laughs> and this is tied into the ascension. This is where we have the sacrifice applied within the temple of God, the altar of God in heaven, where we have the authority. Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 says, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. That's verse 18. Go therefore and preach the gospel. Verse 19. So the authority is established. Notice that he is received up into heaven. This is the work of God saying, I have accepted your sacrifice. I've accepted your work, and now we are going to transform heaven by your arrival here. And we are going to grant you authority. When you see someone sitting at the right hand of the throne, you are taking the place of authority in the kingdom. And one of the greatest biblical examples of that is Joseph with Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh do to Joseph? He elevated him and even gave him his signet ring and said, you have all the authority of the kingdom. You are my right-hand man. I don't want to worry about these seven good years, seven bad years and all that. You take care of it. You're in charge. And Joseph has the authority of all of Egypt. And Egypt becomes the prosperous empire of the, of the world under his leadership. Not just for those 14 years, but for the entirety of his life. The balance of his days. He rules, essentially, Egypt without being Pharaoh. And so, Jesus is not supplanting God the Father. He is seated here uh, in the, at the right hand of God. And he has sat down, past tense. He has received up and sat down. And so, he is in a place of authority. It is completed work. And it is that authority by which we minister the gospel to one another, to the world, and that we preach out of. This is how we minister, is based upon the authority. It's not the authority of my uh, comprehension of the Bible. It's not the authority of, of, of a degree uh, that I get from a Bible college or seminary. It's not the knowledge of the original languages. The authority of ministry is the authority of Jesus Christ in heaven. That's the authority by which we minister. And so there's no mistaking that out of that authority we have this commission. Go and make disciples. Here, men went everywhere preaching the gospel. It moves us because now we aren't timid. There's no reason for timidity. Because we have all the authority behind us. It's kind of like Nehemiah when he shows up in Judea. What does he have with him? He's got an edict from the emperor that he gets to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he's got all the force of the empire behind him. He's got all, all he has to do is ask and he'll get whatever he needs. Materials, protection, army, you name it, I'm going to provide it. And he's got this 
statement. So while he has opposition, Nehemiah had opposition, right? Lots of opposition from what we know of as Samaritans later on in the New Testament. He had lots of opposition, but he had all of this authority behind him. And so he moved around in the region confident because he had authority, not only from Cyrus, but he had authority from God to do this. There's evidence. So we have authority. And while we're going to encounter opposition, it does not dissuade us from the task in front of us because we have the authority of Christ sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And let's go to Luke now. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke also records this in two places, in Luke and in Acts. Acts is also written by Luke. It is the ongoing account of the work of Jesus Christ through his disciples. Let's go to the last chapter of the book of Luke, uh, chapter 24. And again, Luke also doesn't really engage us in the Galilean ministry. His focus is on Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, verse 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so, he is, says, Your witnesses, all of this, you're staying in Jerusalem now. And so this would have been after the Galilean ministry. And here we go. He led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And so here we are. Now Christ is going to uh, be carried up into heaven again. He's going to part from them. And this results in them doing what? Ministry. They're worshiping him. They're going to go into the temple area. When we go to the book of Acts here very quickly, a little bit, we're going to find them preaching the gospel. And this is where we have the, the sign gift of speaking in multiple languages happens in the courtyards of the temple. And everyone gathers together and says, what's going on? Because the Holy Spirit has come and Pentecost is about to happen. Stay in Jerusalem here because Pentecost is now happening. So while we look at these accounts, we say, well, it seems like in Mark and Luke, they don't ever go to Galilee. But in Matthew and John, it's very obvious they did. So how much time are we talking about here? Well, let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we are told how much time we're dealing with. So let's start in verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. That's how important it is. He's going to start off his letter with the ascension. Notice he doesn't say anything about the resurrection at this point. It's the ascension where he left off in Luke. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, remember John just told us that we, I can't write down every encounter we've had with them. And so I'm convinced that Jesus did not just have like four or five encounters with the disciples over 40 days. That's pretty clear. We have about five recorded for us. But over the course of 40 days, it says that Luke says that they had many infallible proofs. There were many opportunities. 
the, of engagement between Jesus Christ. And we even told that at one point he, 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 he was seen by over 140, 120 at one time. And so uh, we have all these things go on for 40 days. So you mark your calendar at the resurrection of our Lord and 40 days, including the day of the resurrection, because in Hebrew accounting and even in, in Roman and Greek accounting, uh, the seventh day is inclusive of the first. They don't count. If I say seven days from now, you won't, will you count today is the question. And for them, they would, which is why uh, the, the appearance of Jesus Christ uh, a week later also happened on the first day of the week where he tells Thomas, here, touch here, feel here. You should be believing. Having seen, you believe, and blessed are those who haven't seen yet believe. So here we are, 40 days. So mark your calendar off. 40 days from your celebration of his resurrection is his ascension. So he appeared for 40 days. And remember, he told him, now you stay in Jerusalem and wait because something's going to happen. And so, we come to verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, he should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still not quite on board with what's going on. They still want a kingdom on earth during their lifetime. And they, they don't comprehend the spiritual nature of the church yet because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will soon come in like manner as you see him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, which is a pretty short distance. You're not allowed to go very far on a Sabbath day. doesn't mean it happened on a Sabbath day. They were a Sabbath day's journey away, which is a short distance. You're only allowed to work, walk so many steps, and then it becomes work. And so that's a Sabbath day's journey, is that with many steps. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And they obeyed what they were told to do. But we know that they were also worshiping, praising God, ministering to one another as they were preparing for what's about to happen. They were going daily to the temple. They were waiting. And so we have this, this 10-day window of them in Jerusalem between the Ascension and Pentecost. Well, Pentecost, if you have a good calendar, might be on there. It might actually say Pentecost on your calendar, uh, and that depends upon how it is extrapolated into in modern Judaism, uh, but we can uh, correlate it to the resurrection very simple. Pentecost means 50, 50 days. And so it's 50 days from Passover, not necessarily the resurrection. 
Okay, the resurrection, of course, was after Passover. And so we go 50 days from Passover's Pentecost, 40 days from the resurrection. So really, we're maybe only a week apart. Okay, if you say three days, three nights in the tomb, if you say that's Passover, Pentecost, 50 days, take those three days away, you got 37, you, or 47, sorry, 50 days, 47, and then you take away the 40 of the ministry, you're talking about seven. So it is recorded for us. It is made emphatic. This is where our authority comes from. This is where our power comes from. This is where the gift of God comes from. It is as Christ ascended into heaven, took captivity captive during the, I'm sorry, that was during his burial. When he ascends to heaven, takes the power, takes the authority, takes the throne, and transforms heaven. And then sends us the Holy Spirit. This is so important a time that it is described for us by the, our gospel writer, John, but not in the gospel of John. And so I've referenced this multiple times, but let's go there one more time in the context of the ascension of Christ to see it in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I want you to notice its centrality to this book, listed not once, but twice, described for us twice in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation, John has already had a vision of Christ coming. Uh, he is, we, we talked about that when we talked about the resurrection. Could you recognize the resurrected Jesus? And if he doesn't look like what John saw in Revelation, you have the wrong idea of what Jesus looked like after he was resurrected. Okay? And so there's a description of Jesus in that. But let's run forward to Revelation chapter 5. And this is where we have what was going on for the 10 days. <laughs> I think the second passage is really important. What was going on between his ascension, seven days, let's say, between the ascension of our Lord and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? What was going on? That's a pretty long time. I mean, if you think about it, seven days, God created the heavens and the earth and rested one day. So what's going on while the, while the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem? Well, John tells us twice, describes what's going on. So let's look at it. It says, um, let's just read the chapter. It says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has now prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures of the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed them to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's where I fit in. 
and have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. The dilemma of heaven is, no one is there that can open the scroll, not even God on his throne that we already introduced to in chapter 4 is worthy to open the scroll because of the condition made on opening the scroll was that it had to be this perfect one who sacrificed himself, was shed his blood, and by the power of that innocent shed blood applied in heaven could open the scroll. The scroll is history now to us, largely, the scroll is what's going to happen from that point forward. The kingdom of God is engulfed in this scroll. And we can't open up the kingdom of God until the lion of the tribe of Judah arrives back into heaven. And how does he arrive? We're looking for a lion and we see a lamb arriving, a lion that has just been slain. And by his shed blood, he applies that there in heaven and we see the transformation that occurs there. The singing that prior focused in on God's creative power now focuses on God's redemptive power through Jesus Christ because redemption trumps creation. Which is why we celebrate on the first day of the week and not an alternate day of the week. Which Saturday doesn't work either if you knew the Hebrew calendar. It's not the Sabbath either. Um, we worship the first day of the week because of this theological importance. And we find Christ's arrival to heaven, <laughs> taking the scroll, which was the focus of heaven. It was the thing that made John weep. And now he has the authority to take the scroll. The song of heaven is changed and the focus completely and entirely not only on the heavenly hosts but of all creation is on the lamb this is his authority this is the application of his blood for your redemption happens at the ascension and so this all occurs the transformation of the worship of heaven but we also want to go to chapter 12 because there's other things going on during this time. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a similar event. The same event. Uh, it has a little bit wider breadth. Let's read it, beginning verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. He drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. There's your birth near the, the first advent. To devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. 
and her child was caught up to God and his throne. That is the ascension. What did you miss? You missed the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You went right from the birth to his ascension. He's caught up to God and his throne. Notice the passiveness there. And I want you to understand, every one of the passages we read about the ascension, it wasn't Jesus ascending, it was him being received into heaven. The ascension, much like the resurrection, is the work of the Father. Jesus didn't jump and never land. He was received up. He was lifted up. Every reference to the ascension is always the clouds received him. They received him. It wasn't him going. It was him being lifted up. Including here. It was that acceptance of the father of a son and is like you walking up to your little child and lifting them up. Ooh, they just ascended. Now they can look at you eye to eye. You've ascended them. This is what the father has done. He has seen the work of his son. He's accepted it. And he's going, oh, what a good little boy. Woohoo! Picks him up. Jesus is the passive recipient of ascension. Just like the resurrection. Jesus didn't resurrect himself. The Father resurrected him. Look through the sermons of Acts and you'll see, you did this, God did this. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Jesus was the passive recipient of resurrection power. He was the passive recipient of the ascension. The Father lifted him, brought him up. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to my Father, but it is the power of the Father that lifted him up. And it's recorded here again in verse 12. But I just want you to notice we went from the birth to the ascension. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled to the wilderness where she was placed prepared, uh, has a place prepared by God. They should feed her there 1,260 days. Let's keep going. So here comes the child has been caught to God. What happens? Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, but the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was any a place found for them in heaven any longer. Let me help you understand what was happening between the Ascension and Pentecost. It was warfare. That's what was happening. We don't think of the spiritual warfare that was involved in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms, that the, we think of the power of the resurrection over our sin, but we don't think of the, of the necessity of saying the Holy Spirit, that somehow that was just a click of the finger. We don't think that there was a war to make that happen. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, Heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the abs of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Theologically, this has to happen at the ascension. Because once the blood of Christ is applied at the altar of God, no one can accuse you. 
But don't think that it happened easily. Don't think that it happened uh, just uh, comfortably. That Satan just recoiled away and shrunk off to earth. No, this is a violent thing. So while we have this transformation, this dramatic transformation of the heavenly temple scene, the worship scene, the throne room of God, we also have a warfare going on, a violent scene there, and everything is huge, all premised upon the arrival of Jesus Christ into the heavenly realm again, having been resurrected and carrying his shed blood. This is the authority we are talking about, the authority to change worship in heaven. So I have no problem defending any changes of worship on earth, pre-Christ and post-Christ. And your Seventh-day Adventist friends are wrong. Because they don't get it. I have no problem understanding that we are involved in a spiritual warfare. That we have opposition. The angels themselves had opposition. That they could not overthrow without the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. How powerful is our opposition? Without Christ, you will be crushed. It will destroy you. And so our trust is fully in Jesus Christ's authority, power of his blood. That as we depend there, we engage in the warfare, but like the angels in their spiritual battleground up there to cast Satan and his, and his, and his followers out of the heavenlies, that they get to the earth, so we have to do it by the power of the Christ that has come. We have to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That we add to the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, that you complete them. Are you completing the sufferings of Jesus Christ? We don't think in terms of us having to complete anything in Christ. But that's what the Bible describes our sufferings as completing his suffering. That he has complete association with us. That we are his children, his joint heirs. That he, is, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so he knows that what you're made out of. He knows the battle that you're engaged in. He has already gained that victory himself. He has already descended in the lower parts of the earth. He is now in heaven with all the authority and he backs his people up. Just like he backed up his angels. If anyone ever says somebody has my back, it better be a Christian because you have God Almighty on the throne have your back. But he also calls you to ministry. And as we have seen in all of these passages that John uh, indirectly <laughs> takes us to, we find that the ascension is the source of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It's the source of our authority. It's a source of our ministry. And part of ministry is not only we often think, well, ministry is when I take my Bible and I teach it to someone, when I share the gospel with someone, when I'm helping the poor and weak. Sometimes ministry is standing up for right against wrong. 
Ministry sometimes looks an awful lot like warfare sometimes. That's why you're called to be soldiers of the cross. And that doesn't mean that you get a cross on a banner and you march into Jerusalem and take on Muslims, okay? I'm not calling you for that. Okay, the Crusades, they still thought they were bringing the kingdom of God on earth by that activity. No, I'm talking about engaging a roaring lion that prowls about and putting on the armor of God and standing firm. It doesn't say to attack anybody, it says stand. Having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Read Ephesians, the armor of God in chapter 6. What does it call you to do? It doesn't tell you to go on the offense at all. It tells you to stand your ground. And everything you're equipping yourself with is defensive. Shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet shall of the preparation of the gospel of peace, all these things and, and others. Uh, and there's only one offensive thing, and it's not yours. It's the sword of the Spirit. Let the Spirit do the work through His Word. You stand your ground. And we don't think of that as ministry. And that's a mistake. Because that's an essential part of ministry. Just as the Michael's archangel, the angels went to war, war broke out against them because Satan didn't want to leave there and it certainly doesn't want to be dispossessed from any place here. But yet that's exactly what we're doing is dispossessing him from heart after heart Life after life, family after family. We are dispossessing Satan himself from them. He has them in his grip, but the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is greater. And we have authority to go out there and to share the gospel with them and let the Holy Spirit convict them. And through his word and through a testimony through the blood of Jesus Christ that we see men be delivered into the kingdom of God. This is the power of the ascension. And we've been ripped off. Because we haven't been celebrating it every year all of our lives for a week. Which would be somewhere in June. Right? Wouldn't it be June? Instead we come up with some weird thing called Juneteenth. Which doesn't mean anything. Oh, that we would get back to understanding the incredible power and wonder of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us and the Pentecost that is the celebration of, Christ, of the Spirit's coming because the Son went to the Father and sent us the Spirit. Oh, let us bring new emphasis to his ascension in our conversation, in our theology, and in our ministry. You have the authority behind you. You have the power of the blood of Jesus Christ behind you. You have the Spirit of God, also reference power from the Spirit of God. Oh, that we minister with this knowledge, confidently engaging in warfare spiritually, but overcomers. The Bible calls you to be more than conquerors, through him who loved us. We do that by the power of our Lord's ascension. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look through your word 
and to consider this area that we have largely neglected in our theology, in our celebrations, in our vocabulary,